why would that be necessary to make a distinction between 16 items and 17 items? When would that be important? For 200,000 years, it was not. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Wachiat. The German mathematician Leopold Kronecker is famous for having said, God made the integers, all else is the work of man. Today's guest, Rafael Nunez from the University of California, San Diego's Department of Cognitive Science, argues against this view and proposes that the very concept of number has emerged through our language and culture. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Rafael Nunez. My name is Rafael Nunez. Um, I'm originally from Chile. I, I, I was born in Santiago. And as a kid, I lived uh, three and a half years in Japan when my, my dad was working in Japan. And, uh, I, you know, I went to kindergarten there and so on. And maybe, you know, I was sort of already early on sort of struck by the differences and varieties of, of people <laughs> on earth. And um, so I got to travel quite a bit already being a kid. And that sort of put me in sort of some kind of arena of of human variation and human diversity and cultural diversity in particular. So I was always intrigued by that. And when I started later traveling and moving around and, and soul searching, <laughs> ended up doing my PhD in Switzerland. And um, then uh, when I was finished, um, I got a um, postdoc fellowship from, um, from the Swiss National Science Foundation that brought me to Stanford and UC Berkeley in the Bay Area, where I did my postdoc years um, supported by the Swiss um, National Science Foundation. And then Long story short, I ended up, you know, back in Europe for some positions in France and Switzerland, but then ultimately, or let's say for the moment, <laughs> uh, back in Southern California now at UC UCSD. Operationalization refers to the practice by which researchers explain how they define and measure their variables. Here, Raphael talks with us about why developing precise definitions of number-related terms is critical to science. You know, science has a strong commitment to an empirical approach. And in doing that, one important step is how you operationalize your definitions. So in order to investigate anything, uh, animal behavior or uh, global warming or the properties of atoms and, and molecules or cells and so on, then it is important to know what you know how is it that we operationalize various things the measurement of energy the measurement of intelligence or whatever the variable or the factors are interested in so on the one hand is like in order to do good science almost as a necessity uh, is that terms have to be clarified in order to understand the interpretations you're going to make now, people may disagree in how you define certain things. So, you know, let's say in economics, how you define unemployment, some people may define it one way, other people may define it another way. But then the point is that we should know what are we understanding by each of these definitions such that we can compare 
results and interpretations and move forward. Now, in the in the domain of of number and mathematics, something interesting happens is that in our culture and our society, mathematics is seen, there's this sort of kind of platonic view that mathematics somehow is sort of part of the fabric of the universe, exists independently of the humans, uh, is, has nothing to do with human sense making or human language or human practices or human needs. Uh, formulas are out there ca capturing something deep about the universe and about how things work. And, and this has been for a long time, since Plato, or perhaps even before. So in a certain way, when we talk about numbers, or we talk about even more elaborated terms in mathematics, in topology or, or sets and so on, a lot of people, many mathematicians, but a lot of physicists in particular, um, believe, and this is not science now, it's beliefs, believe that mathematics exists independently of human beings. Some scientists argue that numbers are external and unchanging facts woven into the fabric of the universe itself. Raphael explains that imprecise scientific language has led to this belief. When it comes to the question of whether number, we have a capacity for number that, that evolved biologically, then there is a presupposition that what, whatever evolved somehow was dealing with this sort of universal pattern in part of the fabric of this ecology in which we exist, namely number. So in, in that sense, um, there is a little bit of this, this ingredient, background ingredient in which uh, kids are learning or kids are perceiving something true about the universe, which is number, or animals are dealing with certain aspect of the universe, which is number. And the brains are, you know, somehow encoding these ultimate properties of the universe, which is number and so on and so forth. So uh, here's when I think uh, because of these these properties or these beliefs that many in our society, including academia and outside of academia and science, uh, this sort of general belief that somehow the precision and the, um, the existence of this numerical sort of structure out there kind of gets entangled with what is that we want to explain that may have evolved or not. And this is when all the terminology gets confusing. And that's why I tried to, in this paper, to disentangle what is the number proper, that it's part of how we humans, and, and some humans, as, as I should say, um, come to understand in terms of precise quantification as opposed to other forms of quantification that are not precise. And then try to disentangle what is, I call in the paper, a numeral, which is a sign symbol for number. or um, numerousness or quantity, which is, you know, something psychophysical that our, you know, nervous system is able to process, but it's not number proper and, and number, which is now a concept and so on and so forth. So that's why I was trying to disentangle all these elements in order to get to the question of evolution. The belief that numbers exist independently of the human mind has come to be called mathematical Platonism. Raphael contrasts this belief with the nativist view that numbers were discovered when humans developed the mental capacity to do so through genetic evolution. 
as well as with that of naturalists who argue instead that numbers are culturally evolved concepts. The more platonic, mind-independent, human-independent view of number and mathematics opposes, on the other end, more like, well, no, number somehow is something that came out from the human mind in some way or directly straight out of the brain. Uh, let's put it more simply. So within now the non-Platonist approaches, you have like two camps. So one camp would say, yeah, of course it's not maybe... It's not out there in the world that we find the numbers, but it's all in the genes almost. It's just like, you know, you look at many species dealing with quantities, uh, whether they are fish or monkeys or pigeons or rats or humans, they all kind of, they're tuned into uh, these sort of numerosities and these quantities are there and then the number comes straight out of that. So that would be the non-Platonist but a nativist approach that would put most of the weight of the um, emergence of numbers and so on uh, on the biological processes. And then there's the non-nativist, again, in the, under the umbrella of non-Platonist, so to speak, uh, but non-nativist in the sense that there are certain biological processes that deal with quantities of things, uh, but that doesn't give you number as an exact quantifier or as a concept that has many other properties. And for that, um, you need cultural preoccupations that, uh, that deal with um, or pushes for exact quantification. So concepts that would now uh, require precision in the, in, in the distinction of 13 items from 12 items, for example. And that doesn't seem to be something that comes straight from the, you know, the nervous system. So that's kind of the two camps, both being non-Platonist, if you want, but one putting a lot of weight into or, or almost determinism for many, coming straight from genes and how... Uh, you know, essentially nervous system are structured to the point that number would, would be the natural consequence. Um, but the other subcamp, non-nativist, would be more like, well, no, you have sort of biological phenomena that would support uh, perceiving quantities in the small range, but that in themselves is not about numbers, it's about quantity. And to get to number, you need way more things that are mediated by language and cultural preoccupations, language and symbol, symbol uh, reference, and so on. Raphael's earlier work concerned the Aymara people, an indigenous group living in the Andes Mountains. He found that their spatial metaphor of time is the reverse of what it is among most other cultures. Namely, for the Aymara, the future lies behind oneself while the past lies ahead. Doug and I wondered how his study of the Amara's abstraction of time might have influenced his thinking about numbers as cultural phenomena. The case of the Aymara is very illustrative and informative in that regard because um, here we have a culture that, you know, conceives the future the other way around in a way, uh, the future being behind the speakers and behind the egos or behind the personas when they, they talk and the past is in front of them. And this you can, you can empirically investigate by, let's say, you know, looking at the gesture production that they have. And in the case of the Aymara, it's just, just they, they recruit a different, a, a different set of properties from the um, 
asymmetry or the contrast of front back than us. What they recruit, what they take for this sort of metaphorical way of conceiving future and past is what is seen and what is not seen, what is known and what is unknown. And so in their worldview, coming out of this embodied way, if you want, of seeing, making sense of temporal uh, concept, is that the past is something we have experienced and we have seen things by being in those moments. So we can see or we can evoke the images of, let's say, a couple of years ago being very dry with no rain whatsoever, with all the consequences that that has. But in a certain way, we do not know. We have no images whatsoever of what is going to be in a couple of years in the future. So that is then outside of the visual field and therefore behind them. In our cultures, on the other hand, we favor a different aspect of the symmetry of the body, which is the fact that we walk into the visual field, we move forwards into the visual field. And that is the aspect that we recruit for anchoring our notions of time and past and future. So even though the two types of bodies are the same, we're all humans with the same type of you know genome in general, let's say as a species, the, the, the recruitment of what properties of, of the bodily asymmetries and contrasts that are brought into are actually crystallized and form substantially different um, concepts in this case of future and past. And these are deeply embodied and importantly, they're not genetically determined and they're culturally shaped by a language and practices. Numbers are exact symbolic quantifications of a collection of objects. However, other systems of rough and imprecise quantification exist, and we use them every day. Ryan and I were curious to know what led humans to move beyond such natural quantifiers, like the terms some, a few, and many, to the exact symbolic quantification that numbers afford us. We, we have biologically evolved preconditions for you know, balance, equilibrium, uh, color perception, and color discrimination, and, and, and so on, and then also to deal with quantities, like a lot of things, a few things, and so on. Now, the question is that when do we get to precise number? When do we get to 14 or 18? Just think simple concepts that we take for granted. Why would that be necessary to make a distinction between 16 items and 17 items? When would that be important? For 200,000 years, it was not relevant. It was relevant maybe to distinguish few and more or many and so on. And, and, and in that sense, for many, let's say, hunter-gathering hunter purposes, having natural quantifiers in language like many, a lot, several, few, all, and so on, it's pretty much enough. That's all we need. When do you start needing precise quantities is when you start to have... Um, you know, financial exchanges or when you start to have agriculture that produces goods that you need to stock and then in the stocking and keeping sort of having a bookkeeping um, sort of information about amounts and so on and then perhaps exchanging, etc., etc. And this is, this is presumably what happened in Mesopotamia, it happened in Central America, in China and other areas where the development of, of, of subsistence agriculture developed into more organized agriculture and potentially exchange. And all these things 
pushed for uh, cultural preoccupations that are not genetically determined, even though they build on these biologically evolved capacities. We have these biologically evolved preconditions for perhaps perceiving or discriminating quantities, like amounts, numerousness, many things from a few things, but that in themselves um, don't lead to number. Number is the result of many things over many years in some societies and today it's just we take it for granted because it's been incredibly useful since we invented them and allowed for things like science to happen and mathematics and many other things but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were with us since the beginning or the dawn of our species the number line is commonly seen as a universal and intuitively understood mathematical device. However, in some cultures, such as the Yubno of Papua New Guinea, people tend to place small quantities of objects on the left endpoint of a number line, and mid-size and large ones on the right. They disregard the cardinality of the middle points. Raphael explains how this demonstrates that the ability to quantify amounts differs from the ability to conceptualize numbers. There are things that we take for granted, let's say the number line. You know, we take for granted when we uh, load pages, uh, web pages, and there's like a bar signaling how much of the page has been loaded, for example, or, or how much battery you have in your cell phone. Those are all indicated with a number or quantity to space mapping in the form of a line. And um, so, the number line, which made you know made possible things like the Cartesian coordinates we use today, and and all the let's say uh, financial indicators or uh, you know thermic let's say weather predictions that you see in, in a graph and so on, all those things that we take for granted actually didn't exist a few hundred years ago. So by the time of Pascal or even Descartes, there was no number line. The number line was invented in the 17th century. So that's nothing. It's just a couple of hundred years ago. And, you know, today is an amazing tool that we teach in kindergartens with little frogs jumping back and forth to say three plus two. And now the frog lands in the position of five. And then if, if you subtract one, then the frog jumps back one, one, uh, you know, step and so on. And that, Kids grab that relatively soon in our society today. But if you go uh, a few hundred years ago, let's say seven, let's say beginning of the 17th century, that was not at all an idea. So that shows how fast cultural tools um, can develop, and in this sense, and you know, a few centuries later, you have something that now we take for granted. In Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Humpty Dumpty insists to Alice. When I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less, much to her puzzlement. Raphael distinguishes the prototypical properties of numbers from those that are not prototypical. We asked him to talk with us about what the familiar sequence of one, two, three says about the definition of numbers. You could also have a variety of meanings of number. And in general, in mathematics, you make very precise which one is the, the one you're using. So you say, okay, such and such works in the real plane or in the complex plane and so on. So then you kind of specify that. But in the case of everyday concepts, um, you, you, know, you, get the, you, know, you get the meaning from the context and the pragmatics, which is sort of the beauty of the human mind in a way. You don't have to specify the axioms for it. So when you say 
passport number or when you say there's a number of people waiting for a parking lot, you understand what it means without having to come up with axioms for it. So that's kind of the, the good side of things. Now, when we do the study of number cognition, we, we need to be clear. And, and therefore I said, well, what is that we in general we understand when people say number now in the domain of numerical cognition? And essentially what it is, uh, is the counting numbers. So one, two, three, four, dot, dot, dot. And so that's where I started to disentangle the notion of natural number uh, from just the counting numbers, when you just count things. And those are not necessarily the natural numbers that have specific axioms sort of regulating their behavior and the inferences you can make with them and so on. So what are the properties of those? When we think of one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, what is it that we sort of capture as properties? For example, uh, quant they quantify in an exact manner. So when you say four, you mean not just few or, or many, depending on the context, you mean just one more than three, perhaps one less than five. So something exact. So they have like, you know, uh, seven properties that I sort of identified. And one of them, which is crucial, is that could be referred to symbolically. So that to this notion of exactness, uh, you, we ascribe a label, which could be a spoken word. It could be a grapheme, so a sign on paper characterizing exactly that meaning, the meaning of, let's say, seven or four and so on. And these, these start to, when we now analyze them more in detail, they start to be really, really different from anything we see in non-human animals, trained or untrained. So the symbolic aspect here seems to really put number in a completely different arena uh, that not, cannot just evolve by itself through genetic uh, or pure, let's say, uh, selective pressures and, and uh, in pure biological evolution. Some non-human animals, such as I, the chimpanzee at Kyoto University, and the gray parrot Alex at Brandeis University, have been trained in captivity to handle quantities in ways that appear similar to those exhibited by humans. While some take these as signs that conceptualizing numbers is an evolved capacity among higher order animals, Raphael argues that these examples are not about numbers, but rather concern quantity. What is interesting about training animals is that, of course, they can give us a lot of information uh, about the, the extent to which uh, you know, animals can be trained. And this includes humans, by the way. So to the extent that the human bodies and the human mind can do things, those are very informative. Now, the problem is when we interpret the results of some of the trainings, let's say with non-human animals, to do certain kinds of things, and then um, reaching certain results that look really astonishing, and actually they are, many of them. But the problem is sort of ignoring the huge role and essential primary role of human interaction with them. Tetsuro Matsuzawa, for example, training I, the chimpanzee, to you know learn symbols for quantities. Very painstaking training, uh, hours and hours per day, weeks, months, years, to make little tiny progress, but progress nonetheless. 
we can learn that you know where can you get but it would be misleading and and uh, to take that as you know her accomplishments i i'm talking about um as as saying something about chimpanzee evolution because that is not what happened the, those niches in which i was put in her development was all humanly mediated and created for human purposes so that is very different from what chimpanzees encounter in the wild and so on. In that sense, you need some kind of enculturation of these particular individual animals belonging to specific species to to reach like a certain minimum um, development of what we may call numerical as opposed to what I say in my paper, quantical, which is all these other capacities that essentially are innate and many species have to discriminate large amounts from small amounts. Lastly, we asked Raphael what his thoughts and concerns are about the future of the fields of science in which he works as a researcher. I work in different domains, different areas. So some, some of my work has to do with psychology, other work more with math or math education. Uh, anthropology, linguistics. So I think diff these different areas have sort of different kinds of, you know, preoccupations and and uh, and accomplishments and so on. And I see many universities and institutions being kind of more sensitive or more under the pressure that whatever they investigate has to produce some kind of concrete result, applied science, and sort of leaving a little bit the 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 you know the necessity to also develop proper basic science. And um, so I'm a little worried what the next chapter will be in many of these field, disciplines and fields. And if I may add something about content, I think one thing uh, which has changed compared to, let's say, the last couple of decades, uh, I think now there is a, a little more an appreciation of what culture means and what culture is in the study of the mind as a whole, that cultural practices, cultural forms and variations are beginning to be understood uh, more as a, as part of a, the fabric of, of human the human saga and not just like little depositories of, of individual variation. And, and I think that's something enriching. And the appreciation of, uh, for example, all these forms of cultural forms that are starting to disappear. And this, this also means um, languages that are disappearing as we speak, simply losing the speakers and disappearing forever. And many of these languages are going to disappear and are disappearing without us knowing anything about them, anything about the lexical systems or morphologies or anything. And, and that is sort of also not only pressing, but I think the community is starting to realize a little more about the, the urgency that exists right now to study these languages. And that, I think, is a plus that we see that as a whole, I would say there's a tendency to value more these variations, but still the pressing issue um, that we need to try to study, investigate, and uh, respect these forms of variation uh, before they disappear. That was Rafael Nunez discussing his article, Is There Really an Evolved Capacity for Number? Published in the journal, Trends in Cognitive Sciences. You'll find a link to his paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials that he discussed during the show. Have you got a tip for parsing science? If so, we'd love to hear from you, like we did from this caller. 
Hello, this is Landon Reed of Brooklyn, New York, and I too love parsing science. I love it so much that I'm calling in to recommend that you explore the research of Jennifer Eberhardt at Stanford University. In a nation that we increasingly recognize as delimited by race, Professor Eberhardt's work examining the consequences of the psychological associations between race and crime is a sobering revelation for us all. May the best of our knowledge make 2018 better than its predecessor. You can call us toll-free at 1-844-EXPLORE-IT. That's 1-844-975-6748. Leave us a message, and we might feature your call in a future show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Bill Clark from UCLA's Department of Geography. He'll talk with us about his research into how deciding to move from one's home or to stay put isn't necessarily the rational process that most of us think that it is. We work within an arena of decisions, and some of them are drawn from our experience, others are drawn from exterior impacts, but in the end we're trying to, to make decisions that are best for us. We don't always do that. We hope that you will join us again.